Section 40 of The Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Intellect Part 4 It is evident that such a system of trade might go on for ages without the respective tribes becoming better acquainted with each other. It is only by means of war and of religion that the tribes can be compressed into the nation. The shepherd tribes had a natural aptitude for war. They lived almost entirely on horseback. They attacked wild beasts in hand-to-hand -hand conflict on the open plain, and they often fought with one another for a pasture or a well. They were attracted by the crops of the agricultural people, whom they conquered with facility. Usually they preferred their roaming life, and merely exacted a tribute of corn. But sometimes a people worsted in war, exiled from their pastures, wandering homeless through the sandy deserts, discovered a fruitful river plain in which they settled down, giving up their nomad habits but keeping their flocks and herds. They reduced the aborigines to slavery, made some of them labourers in the fields, others were appointed to tend the flocks, others were sent to the river or the coast to fish. Others were taught the arts of the distaff and the loom. Others were made to work as carpenters and smiths. The wives of the shepherd conquerors were no longer obliged to milk the cows and camels and to weave clothes and tents. They became ladies and were attended by domestic slaves. Their husbands became either military nobles or learned priests. The commander-in-chief or the patriarch became the king. Foreign wars led to foreign commerce, and the priest developed the resources of the country. The simple fabrics of the old tent life were refined in texture and beautified with dyes. The potter's clay was converted into fine porcelain and glass. The blacksmith's shop became a manufactory of ornamented arms. Ingenious machines were devised for the irrigation of the soil. The arts and sciences were adopted by the government and employed in the service of the state. Here, then, we have a nation manufactured entirely by means of war. Religion is afterwards useful as a means of keeping the conquered people in subjection, but in this case it plays only a secondary part. In another class of nationalities, however, religion operates as the prime agent. When the human herd first wandered through the gloomy and gigantic forest, sleeping on reed platforms in the trees, or burrowing in holes, there was no government but that of force. The strongest man was the leader, and ceased to be the leader when he ceased to be the strongest. But as the minds of men became developed, the ruler was elected by the members of the clan, who combined to depose him if he exceeded his rightful powers. And chiefs were chosen, not only for their strength, but also sometimes for their beauty, and sometimes on account of their intelligence. These chiefs possessed but little power. They merely expressed and executed the voice of the majority. But when it was believed that the soul was immortal, or, in other words, that there were ghosts, when it was believed that the bodies of men were merely garments, and that the true inmates were spirits, whom death stripped bare of flesh and blood, but whom death was powerless to kill, when it was believed that these souls, or ghosts, dwelt among the graves, haunted their old homes, 
hovered round the scenes in which they had passed their lives, and even took a part in human affairs, a theory arose that the ghost of the departed chief was still the ruler of the clan, and that in his spiritual state he could inflict terrible punishments on those by whom he was offended, and could also bestow upon them good fortune in hunting, in harvests, and in war. So then homage and gifts were rendered to him at his grave. A child of his house became the master of the clan, and professed to receive the commands of the deceased. For the first time the chiefs were able to exercise power without employing force. But this power had also its limits. In the first place the chief feared he would be punished by the ghost if he injured the people over whom he ruled, and there were always prophets or seers who could see visions and dream dreams when the mind of the people was excited against the chief. By means, therefore, of religion, which at first consisted only in the fear of ghosts, the government of the clan was improved. Savage liberty or license was restrained. The young trembled before the old, whom previously they had eaten as soon as they were useless. Religion was also of service in uniting separated clans. In the forest food was scanty. As soon as a clan expanded, it was forced to divide, and the separated part pursued an orbit of its own. Savage dialects change almost day by day. The old people can always speak a language which their grandchildren do not understand. And so, in the course of a single generation, the two clans become foreigners and foes to one another. But when ghost worship had been established, the members of the divided clans resorted to the holy graves at certain seasons of the year to unite with the members of the parent clan in sacrificing to the ancestral shades. The season of the pilgrimage was made a truce of God. A fair was held, at which trade and competitive amusements were carried on. Yet still the clans or tribes had little connection with one another, excepting at that single period of the year. It was for war to continue the work which religion had begun. Sometimes the tribes uniting invaded a foreign country and founded an empire of the kind which has already been described. Then the army became a nation and the camp a town. In other cases, the tribes, being weaker than their neighbours, were compelled, for their mutual protection, to draw together into towns and to fortify themselves with walls. In its original condition, the town was a federation. Each family was a little kingdom in itself, inhabiting a fortified cluster of dwellings, having its own domestic religion, governed by its own laws. The paterfamilias was king and a priest. He could put to death any member of his family. There was little distinction between the wives, the sons, and the daughters, on the one hand, and the slaves, the oxen, and the sheep on the other. These family fathers assembled in council, and passed laws for their mutual convenience and protection. Yet these laws were not national. They resembled treaties between foreign states, and two houses would frequently go to war and fight pitched battles in the streets without any interference from the Commonwealth at large. If the town progressed in power and intelligence, the advantages of centralization were perceived by all. The fathers were induced to emancipate their children and to delegate their royal power to a senate 
or a king. Each man was responsible for his own actions and for them alone. Individualism was established. This important revolution, which, as we have elsewhere shown, tends to produce the religious theory of rewards and punishments in a future state, was itself in part produced by the influence and teaching of the priests. Besides the worship of the ancestral shades, the ancient people adored the great deities of nature who governed the woods and the waters, the earth and the sky. When men died, it was supposed that they had been killed by the gods. It was therefore believed that those who lived to a good old age were special favourites of the divine beings. Many people asked them by what means they had obtained the good graces of the gods. With savages, nothing is done gratis. The old men were paid for their advice, and, in course of time, the oracle system was established. The old men consulted the gods. They at first advised, they next commanded what gifts should be offered on the altar. They collected taxes, they issued orders on the divine behalf. In the city of federated families, the priests formed a sect entirely apart. They belonged not to this house or to that house, but to all. It was to their interest that the families should be at peace, that a national religion should be established, that the household gods, or ancestral ghosts, should be degraded, that the despotism of the hearth should be destroyed. They acted as peacemakers and arbitrators of disputes. They united the tribes in the national sacrifice and the solemn dance. They preached the power and grandeur of the gods. They became the tutors of the people. They rendered splendid service to mankind. We are accustomed to look only at the dark side of those ancient faiths, their frivolous and sanguinary laws, their abominable offerings, their grotesque rites. Yet even the pure and lofty religions of Confucius and Zoroaster, of Moses and Jesus and Mohammed, of the Brahmins and the Buddhists, have not done so much for man as those barbarous religions of the early days. They established a tyranny, and tyranny was useful in the childhood of mankind. The chiefs could only enact those laws which were indispensable for the life of the community. But the priests were supposed to utter the commands of invisible beings, whose strange tempers could clearly be read in the violent outbreaks and changing aspects of the sky. The more irrational the laws of the priests appeared, the more evident it was that they were not of man. Terror generated piety. Wild savages were tamed into obedience. They became the slaves of the unseen. They humbled themselves before the priests and implicitly followed their commands that they might escape sickness, calamity and sudden death. Their minds were subjected to a useful discipline. They acquired the habit of self-denial, which, like all habits, can become a pleasure to the mind and can be transmitted as a tendency or instinct from generation to generation. They were ordered to abstain from certain kinds of food, to abstain from fishing and working in the fields on days sacred to the God of the waters and the earth. They were taught to give with generosity, not only in fear, but also in thanksgiving. Even the human sacrifices which they made were sometimes acts of filial piety and of tender love. They gave up the slaves whom they valued most to attend their fathers to the underworld, or sent their souls 
as presents to the gods. But the chief benefit which religion ever conferred upon mankind, whether in ancient or in modern times, was undoubtedly the oath. The priests taught that if a promise was made in the name of the gods, and that promise was broken, the gods would kill those who took their name in vain. Such is the true meaning of the third commandment. Before that time, treaties of peace and contracts of every kind in which mutual confidence was required could only be effected by the interchange of hostages. But now, by means of this purely theological device, a verbal form became itself a sacred pledge. Men could at all times confide in one another, and foreign tribes met freely together beneath the shelter of this useful superstition which yet survives in our courts of law. In those days, however, the oath required no law of perjury to sustain its terrors. As Xenophon wrote, He who breaks an oath defies the gods, and it was believed that the gods never failed, sooner or later, to take their revenge. The priests, in order to increase their power, studied the properties of plants, the movements of the stars. They cultivated music and the imitative arts. Reserving their knowledge to their own caste, they soon surpassed in mental capacity the people whom they ruled. And being more intelligent, they became also more moral, for the conscience is an organ of the mind. It is strengthened and refined by the education of the intellect. They learned from nature that there is unity in all her parts. Hence they believed that one god or man-like being had made the heavens and the earth. At first this god was a despotic tithe-taker like themselves, but as their own minds became more noble and more pure, as they began to feel towards the people a sentiment of paternity and love, so God, the reflected image of their minds, rose into a majestic and benignant being, and this idea reacted on their minds, as the imagination of the artist is inspired by the masterpiece which he himself has wrought. And, as the Venus of Milo and the Apollo Belvedere have been endowed by man with a beauty more exquisite than can be found on earth, a beauty that may well be termed divine, so the God who is worshipped by elevated minds is a mental form endowed with power, love and virtue in perfection. The Venus and the Apollo are ideals of the body. God is an ideal of the mind. Both are made by men. Both are superhuman in their beauty. Both are human in their form. To worship the image made of stone is to worship the work of the human hand. To worship the image made of ideas is to worship the work of the human brain. God-worship, therefore, is idolatry. But in the early stages of mankind, how fruitful of good was that error, how ennobling was that chimera of the brain. For when the priests had sufficiently progressed in the wisdom of morality to discover that men should act to others as they would have others act to them, that they should never do in thought what they would not do in deed, then these priests, the shepherds of the people, desired to punish those who did evil and to reward those who did good to their fellow men, and thus, always transferring their ideas from the imaginary being whom they had created and whom they adored, they believed and they taught that God punished the guilty, that God rewarded the good.
and when they perceived that men are not requited in this world according to their deeds, they believed and they taught that this brief life is merely a preparation for another world, that the souls, or ghosts, will be condemned to eternal misery or exalted to everlasting bliss, according to the lives which they have led within the garment of the flesh. This belief, though not less erroneous than that on which the terrors of the oath were based, this belief, though not less a delusion than the faith in ghosts, of which, in fact, it is merely an extension, this belief, though it will some day become pernicious to intellectual and moral life, and has already plundered mankind of thousands and thousands of valuable minds, exiling earnest and ardent beings from the mainstream of humanity, entombing them in hermitage or cell, teaching them to despise the gifts of the intellect which nature has bestowed, teaching them to waste the precious years in barren contemplations and in selfish prayers, this belief has yet undoubtedly assisted the progress of the human race. In ancient life, it exalted the imagination, it purified the heart, it encouraged to virtue, it deterred from crime. At the present day, a tender sympathy for the unfortunate, a jealous care for the principles of freedom, a severe public opinion, and a law difficult to escape, are the safeguards of society, but there have been periods in the history of man when the fear of hell was the only restriction on the pleasure of the rulers, when the hope of heaven was the only consolation in the misery of the ruled. The doctrine of rewards and punishments in a future state is comparatively modern. The authors of the Iliad, the authors of the Pentateuch, had no conception of a heaven or a hell. They knew only Hades or Sheol, where men dwelt as shadows, without pain, without joy, where the wicked ceased from troubling and the weary were at rest. The sublime conception of a single God was slowly and painfully attained by a few civilized people in ancient times. The idea that God is a being of virtue and of love has not been attained even in the present day except by a cultivated few. Such is the frailty of the human heart, that men, even when they strive to imagine a perfect being, stain him with their passions, and raise up an idol which is defective as a moral form. The God of this country is called a God of love, but it is said that he punishes the crimes and even the errors of a short and troubled life with torture which will have no end. It is not even a man which theologians create, for no man is quite without pity. No man, however cruel he might be, could bear to gaze for ever on the horrors of the fire and the rack. No man could listen for ever to voices shrieking with pain and ever crying out for mercy and forgiveness. And if such is the character of the Christian God, if such is the idea which is worshipped by compassionate and cultivated men, what are we to expect in a barbarous age? The god of Job was a sultan of the skies, who, for a kind of wager, allowed a faithful servant to be tortured, like that man who performed vivisection on a favourite dog which licked his hand throughout the operation. The Jehovah of the Pentateuch was a murderer and bandit. He rejoiced in offerings of human flesh. The gods of Homer were lascivious and depraved. The gods of savages 
are merely savage chiefs. God, therefore, is an image of the mind, and that image is ennobled and purified from generation to generation, as the mind becomes more noble and more pure. Europeans believe in eternal punishment, partly because it has been taught them in their childhood, and because they have never considered what it means, partly because their imaginations are sluggish, and they are unable to realise its cruelty, and partly also, it must be feared, because they have still the spirit of revenge and persecution in their hearts. The author of Job created God in the image of an oriental king, and in the east it is believed that all men by nature belong to the king, and that he can do no wrong. The Bedouins of the desert abhorred incontinence as a deadly sin, but brigandage and murder were not by them considered crimes. In the Homeric period, piracy was a profession, and vices were the customs of the land. The character of a god is that of the people who have made him. When, therefore, I expose the crimes of Jehovah, I expose the defective morality of Israel, and when I criticise the god of modern Europe, I criticise the defective intellects of Europeans. The reader must endeavour to bear this in mind, for, though he may think that his idea of the Creator is actually the Creator, that belief is not shared by me. End of section 40